0: Hopefully you're turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Opportunity has uh, been on my calendar for a long time. I still don't know how to uh, but still exciting. Uh, Those of us who spend a lot of time on computers uh, have have this list of words that we just can't figure out how to spell, but we can trust the autocorrect, and Ecclesiastes is that for me. As, I, as uh, Julie came in this morning, she saw that I was the speaker and she threatened to leave, so we're off to a good start. <laughs> but uh, I'm excited to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 with you today. Uh, you know by now that Ecclesiastes can be uh, a dark book and that reading and study, studying it can uh, tempt us to despair, even in the first few verses of, uh, of Ecclesiastes, The author, who I will refer to as Solomon today, uh, will call all of life meaningless. A dark beginning to a message that I believe is meant to sadden us, but also I believe that the sadness is meant to drive us into the arms of Jesus. Am I doing anything wrong with the mic up here? Is this okay? Okay. No, that's all right that Ecclesiastes may produce in us, I believe is meant to drive us into the arms of Jesus. And of course, the original readers of this book would not have known Jesus' name. He wouldn't walk the earth for another 900 years, Uh, but they were still responsible to love and obey Yahweh more than they loved anything or anyone else. Uh, And we've seen the darkness in this book. As Solomon bemoans the vanity of life under the sun, as he calls it. Every pursuit, every avenue of blessing to him seems pointless or futile or a striving after the wind. And although the meaninglessness of life is troubling to our author, uh, something I want to point out is that although he's saying that life is meaningless, he doesn't hesitate throughout the book to make value judgments, and to make recommendations about how we should live. An example of that is found in the first verse of Ecclesiastes 7, when he says the day of death is better than the day of birth. So he's saying that life is meaningless on one hand, but then saying that one thing is better than another. I think the wisest man on earth would see the contradiction there. How can everything be meaningless, everything be devoid of meaning, yet some things are better than others? Some things are preferable to other things. If we were to interpret his words, all is vanity, in the first verses, in a wooden, literal sense, then we would conclude that nothing matters, and no one thing could be better than other things. The day of death couldn't be better than the day of birth if nothing meant anything. Is Solomon contradicting himself, or is it possible that the wisest man who ever lived is trying to communicate a complicated message? Because you see, in addition to being dark, Ecclesiastes is also, I would argue, with the easiest book in the Bible to misunderstand. And I'm not saying that as the person who's about to make it easy to understand. I'm just explaining that there's a lot of complicated things in the book, and we need to compare Ecclesiastes with itself to understand it. It's easy to get lost in the weeds, and I feel strongly as a pastor that the pulpit is not a place to speculate and guess, and I don't want to have a whole message full of I thinks and maybes and probabilities and possiblys and how about this and maybe it's this. Instead of doing that, I'm just going to grab a hold of something in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 that I do understand. Instead of trying to navigate the whole chapter and explain every possible detail, I'm going to give you a main truth that I can, I'm confident in and I believe we can all be confident in. And that truth that I would like to expose is found in the first three verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. When I preached last Sunday morning, I had to apologize for covering nearly two chapters in one sermon. Uh, And now I guess I'm going to apologize for being assigned a chapter and only covering three verses. But I think you'll find, as I did, uh, that there's more than enough for us in these first three verses of chapter 10. So I'll read them for you, and then I'll give you some instructions about interpreting Proverbs as a genre, because that's what they are. They're Proverbs in the middle of the book of Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes 10, starting in verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. He says to everyone that he is a fool. I've been thinking about these three little proverbs longer than I want to admit. Proverbs were meant to be contemplated and internalized. The truth of a proverb is usually uh, short and simple, so the contemplation is not for the purpose of understanding the meaning of the proverb. The contemplation is meant so you can learn and discover ways to apply the truth to your life. You read poetry differently than you read a story than you would read a letter in the new testament i'll give you an example of this from proverbs chapter one i think i even have it on the screen for you so you don't have to turn there proverbs chapter one there's a proverb in verse 10 that says my son if sinners entice you do not consent okay this is i'm not trying to unpack this for you i'm just trying to point out that this is not hard to understand we can read this once and know what it's saying You don't even have to explain it to a small child. Maybe you'd you'd have to pick out some words and tell the five-year-old what this means, but the concept is something that can be grasped by even a four or five-year-old. Not hard to understand. The difficulty is knowing how to apply it. Even when the concept is grasped, we're not done. We would only arrive at knowledge at that point. We need to go past the knowledge, which is good and valuable, in order to have wisdom. Because I can know a lot of things and still be a fool. I can, I can win a game of Bible trivia and not be born again. Someone once said that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit and wisdom is not putting it on a fruit salad. Right? <laughs> Silly example. But it illustrates the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is only up here and wisdom is the feet and the hands that carry out that knowledge in everyday life the knowledge found in proverbs 110 could be grasped by a five-year-old but i think we can all imagine a 50-year-old that doesn't apply it to their life it doesn't matter what you know it matters what you do when we're talking about wisdom So I think I've made my point about Proverbs, right? We can understand them without applying them. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. So we're supposed to contemplate Proverbs of wisdom so that when certain circumstances pop up in our life, we are ready to act with wisdom. And today in Ecclesiastes 10, we have three simple Proverbs and I will spend some time explaining them, but we'll miss the point if we don't spend a lot of time applying them. The first proverb is on the screen. Most of it's on the screen. I don't know what it is that I do that always gets cut off a little bit. That's my fault, though, because I make it in a, on an Apple computer, and they use Windows back there, so my bad. But you found it in your Bible anyway. Ecclesiastes 10.1 says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So of the two lines in this proverb, the message is on the second line. But the first line is meant to illustrate it. Imagine some contaminated perfume, an ointment that's supposed to give off a sweet smell, but it's polluted with something like dead flies, so now the entire container gives off a stench. If you're thinking, that doesn't sound very realistic, then I would either say that you're viewing this with your 21st century eyes or or maybe you're smelling it with your 21st century nose because when we think of dead flies and perfume, it's like we're still going to smell the perfume. We have to enter the uh, 9th century before Christ nose and then you'll find out that perfume back then wouldn't be chemically enhanced, genetically modified. They were looking at basically oil, spices, and flowers probably would be the main ingredients in their perfume. It would be very, very mild compared to what we have today. Uh, So something like flies would ruin the entire batch of ointment. Another modern illustration could be used. We might say today that uh, one small stain ruins an entire white t-shirt. Just a little bit. It ruins the whole thing. I'll give you another picture. I used to work for a moving company. And on one particularly large job, uh, at the end of the day, I checked my, my watch was tracking my steps and keeping track of how many calories I burned and all of that. And my watch told me, if it was accurate, that on that day I had walked 23 miles, just to and from the moving truck, all day. So let's imagine that during those 23 miles, walking back and forth from the truck, think about half of that distance I would be carrying something, and I need to be careful because I'm either loading the truck or unloading the truck and then going back to get the other thing. So half of the time I'm carrying something, being careful, not trying to bump into either the door jam, trying not to trip as I either go down the stairs or walk back up the, the ramp into the moving van, right? I have to be careful while I'm carrying the. And if I execute the whole move without making a single mistake, that would be really good. So let's pretend I did that. Let's pretend all 23 miles I haven't made a single mistake yet. If that were the case, that would be a perfect move. What if I made just one mistake, I load it into the truck, I drive carefully, we get to the next location just fine, I unload everything into another house, zero mistakes except for one, and I put everything in the wrong house. (laughs) My one mistake would undo all of the careful movements that I have done that day. Everything good that I did would be ruined by one little mistake. That's not a real story. I didn't do that. <laughs> one final picture for your mind. Anyone used to ride a teeter-totter or a seesaw? Anybody? No? Is that a Michigan thing? Okay. <laughs> My brothers are here today. I'm the, I'm the youngest of us three. Uh, which means when we were little kids, I was the the smallest and the lightest. I'm convinced that seesaws are just made so that older brothers can pick on younger brothers. I'm pretty sure that's why. It's a sick joke when you think about it. Um, You don't want to ride one of these things with someone who's heavier than you. because They can trap you in the air, roll off, and there's nothing to cushion your blow except a metal seat, right? Imagine a seesaw if we load up whatever in your mind wisdom looks like, Maybe gold bars, jewels, if you think in the Proverbs. Load up one side of the teeter-totter with wisdom. So it's piled high, even overflowing. And it would just sprinkle a few grains of foolishness on the other side. This verse is saying that that foolishness would launch the wisdom into the air. A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. It doesn't matter what illustration we're using, whether it's a teeter-totter, a moving job... A white stain, or a stain on a white shirt rather, or even the one Solomon uses with perfume and flies. The point is that a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Wisdom has the ability to do much good, but a little little foolishness can undo all of it. Perhaps Solomon would comment that this is a vanity and striving after wind. So that's our first proverb. A little foolishness outweighs a lot of wisdom. And this should startle us a little bit. It should have an effect on our emotions, perhaps even our demeanor. Do you feel humbled by the fact that no matter what good you do or how much good you accomplish, one little mistake could undo all of it? Does it bother you that you're not good enough? No matter how much better or wiser you are than people around you, if you have one little mistake, just a little foolishness, your wisdom is undone. It should bother us. It should frustrate us. What's the solution for this? How can we be saved from the folly that invades every corner of our life? Some, after grasping this, respond with legalism. They would say, since one mistake can ruin everything, we need to make sure there are no mistakes, and we need to set up and create rules as a a barrier so that there's no space for foolishness to wreck all that we have built. And they're trying to do something good, but this attitude misses the point. It assumes that perfection is possible, that we could actually achieve it. It assumes that God could be pleased with human effort. You're never going to get there. There will always be one mistake. So that doesn't work, but there's an error on the other side of the spectrum as well, the other wrong way to react would be with carelessness about life. You could say, since one mistake will ruin it all, we may as well not even try. The response of someone who wants to uh, do right, that, that, that's how they would respond if they wanted to do right, but deep down they were overwhelmed by the sin that they know is in them. Or perhaps they're overwhelmed by the law, as Paul would call it they retreat into nihilism, believing that there is no meaning, that nothing matters, and they do it because it's more comfortable than being punished for sin and foolishness. Sin and the law, and I believe Ecclesiastes, are meant to overwhelm us, but not to drive us to despair. Properly understood, they create in us a longing for the Savior. Our foolishness won't be solved by more rules to follow, and our sorrow won't go away if we tell ourselves to stop caring. The entire system needs to be overhauled. And you can probably see where this is going, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. We're going to go jump to verse number two, the second proverb. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Once again, it's simple. There's a difference between someone who is wise and someone who's a fool. Something interesting about the way this proverb is worded is that the wise man and the fool are contrasted, not by what they know, but by what they do once again, further bolstering the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge to real life situations. I once heard a preacher define wisdom as the ability to apply the character and the commands of God to life's decisions it's a great definition but let's work on a definition of a fool you'll notice that our three proverbs today mention fools and folly more than they mention wisdom fools and folly are the focus And even if you were to continue reading in chapter 10, even as you scan through it on your own, you would see foolishness mentioned several times. Look at verse 12, where the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. Verse 13, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. Verse 14, who is it that multiplies words? A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. Verse 15, the toil of a fool wearies him. Ecclesiastes 10 is about foolishness. So we better learn what it is. And the best biblical definition of a fool is found in Psalm 14.1. Once again, it's on the screen. You can turn there if you'd like, but you don't have to. We're all over the poetic books today. And in Psalm 14.1 says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. I think of this as a foundational text for foolishness, just like how we would think of Proverbs 1-7 as a foundational text for wisdom. You can compare them. They're on the screen. Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we know that knowledge comes before wisdom, and this verse we know that the fear of the Lord comes before knowledge, the foundation of it. Psalm 14.1 tells us that the one who rejects God is a fool. I know this is a lot of information. We're supposed to be in Ecclesiastes 10, but I want you to see the primary difference between wisdom and folly. Here it is. Psalm 14.1, living as if God doesn't exist is foolish. Proverbs 1.7, living as if God does exist is the foundation for wisdom and for knowledge. In our passage, Ecclesiastes 10.2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right but a fool's heart to the left the wise man and the fool are being pulled in different directions based on what they believe about god wisdom and folly pull us in different directions there's more to it than that look at our look at our third proverb verse 3 even when the fool walks on the road he lacks sense and he says to everyone that he is a fool even when the fool is doing something as simple as walking, he is proclaiming to the world that he lacks wisdom. Wisdom takes us one way. Living as if there is a god takes us one way. Living as if there is no god takes us down a path of folly, and everyone can see it. Unless perhaps they're on the path with you. There's a non-biblical proverb, a saying, that uh, actually my dad used to tell me when I was a kid. He said, it's, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak up and remove all doubt. There's a biblical proverb that says basically the same thing. My Sunday school teacher, when I was in junior high, said it this way, an empty wagon makes the most noise. They're clever sayings, and there's a lot of truth to them, but verse 3, our proverb in verse 3 takes it even further if you're a fool you don't even have to speak to make it known people can see it when you walk in the road people can tell by watching your actions wisdom is known by its works the fool walks in a different direction than the wise man walks so the principle there is folly announces itself and affects everything you do so to summarize a little folly outweighs a lot of wisdom which could drive us either to legalism or to despair wisdom and folly pull us in opposite directions because one is a worldview that begins with god and the other has no god and no foundation and folly announces itself number three and affects everything so it turns out the foundation that you build on matters if you build a life on a foundation that says god exists and i'm accountable to him you're going to work towards completely different goals than if you had started without god the big idea the main point that all of these proverbs contribute to is very similar to what i believe the main point of ecclesiastes as a whole is here it is if you want to write it down life without god is pointless because wisdom can't be achieved without god So if you don't have it, you're a fool. Life without God is pointless. A worldview that doesn't account for God, in that worldview, you can't have knowledge and you can't have wisdom. You're stuck being a fool, stuck walking down the wrong path, stuck proclaiming to everyone that you are a fool. One of the most important Bible verses for our day and age, our time, our culture, is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. He's the foundation of our book, our gospel message, and he ought to be the foundation of our lives. Without him, life really would be pointless. That's the truth. But remember, this is is only knowledge. We've only arrived at a truth. We aren't done yet. Knowledge is meant to be applied to our lives. The Holy Spirit inspired this scripture, and it's profitable. It's profitable for us and meant to equip us for good works. Not to leave us dangling off the edge of a cliff wondering what's next. Allow me to take you through a guided application of the truth that God has revealed in these verses. The main point is that life without God is pointless. How does that affect our life today in Ypsilanti, Michigan? For a few minutes, I'm going to speak to you, not because I believe this, but just for the sake of uh, the, the rhetoric here. I'm going to speak to you as if you had no idea who God is or what the Bible says. If that were the case, and you were presented with the truth that life without God is pointless, the most obvious reaction in the world, if you believed me, would be, okay, well, I'm going to live life with God then, right? Life without God is pointless. I desire meaning in my life, so I'm going to invite God in and include him. There's a problem with this, though, because God doesn't want anything to do with you. You are a sinner. You can't have a relationship with God. You're an enemy of God. The Bible says you hate God. Every time you break his law, every time you sin, you're demonstrating that you want to live your life on your own as if he doesn't even exist. The, the appropriate response to the problem of sin, the problem of foolishness that Ecclesiastes is giving us, is, that, uh, is, is to make us want God and to uh, make us repent and have sorrow. But most who hear this message, most in the world who hear this message, don't even get that far, do they? Even if they can sense that something is wrong with the world or wrong with them, there's zero desire to take responsibility for it or to confess and repent of the sin and foolishness. The good news is that although we love our foolishness and we love living as if God isn't real, he has chosen to love some of us, He implants into some a little spark of life that his word and his spirit and his people can fan into a consuming flame. And this new life that God gives destroys the old man along with his desires and allows a new man to live and grow. This is called regeneration. And conversion. It's a miracle. It's performed by God and allows someone who was dead in the foolishness of sin to be made alive, to have faith and wisdom that performs good works, to walk the right path of wisdom instead of the left path of foolishness. A faith response to these three Proverbs involves admitting that they are true, that whatever wisdom we may have, is destroyed by the foolishness which we surely have no matter how wise we think we are the foolishness of sin outweighs all of it once we acknowledge our disposition towards sin disposition contrary to wisdom and contrary to the fear of the lord and and we admit that the path of wisdom is desirable and that god's way is best because god is the greatest treasure in the universe if we acknowledge that and submit ourselves to god like solomon does at the end of ecclesiastes in that almost last verse when he says the end of the matter all has been heard fear god and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man when that happens and we submit ourselves to Christ and his lordship as pastor Jim was saying this morning uh, the spirit has initiated that spark of life and and when that happens we're saved from our foolishness and i believe that conclusion that last verse in the book is an expression of saving faith because sinners in the old testament and the new testament are saved in the same way saved by faith in god and we have the benefit of knowing what solomon didn't know we know how we are saved We know that about 900 years after Solomon's vapor of a life, a new king would be born, a king who would bear the sins of his people, never having sinned himself. And we know that all who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins are given not only forgiveness, but they are given meaning and a point to their life. The vanity and futility that Solomon is bemoaning has come to an end for those who trust in solomon's descendant all who trust in christ have a purpose so let's complete our big idea because it's not good enough the way it is life without god is pointless but the gospel has given us meaning life without god life under the sun as solomon calls it is a life of futility and those who live that way could accurately be described as fools they're living as if there's no god to whom they are accountable But the thing is, there is a God of infinite value. There is a God who created people in his own image. There's a God who assigned human life value and who offered freedom to those who would trust in his son. He offered to redeem humans from their sin. And we who believe this have a foundation to build on. Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount with these verses. He says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. If you believe in a creator, a creator that you are accountable to, and you believe that he has spoken to us and given us his word, then guess what? You have something that the secular world can never have. You have a foundation for morality. They teach us that we come from chimps and then wonder why everyone is acting like a chimp. They have no ground for morality or for goodness. They can't even use the word should and be logically consistent. Their worldview precludes the use of the imperative, saying you should do this. They can only describe what they think happened. But we who are alive, who God has chosen, have a foundation for morality for government, law, economy, education, meaningful work, literature, music, visual arts, social studies, math, language, all of these pursuits can be taught in a distinctively Christian way. The wise man goes right and the fool goes left. It has to affect real life. The foundation you build on matters. I've been rambling, not without purpose, I hope, I want to arrive here at this moment to ask you how much of your life is built on the Word of God. Because life without him is pointless, and it's easy to nod and agree while the pagan is condemned and while the evolutionist is mocked. But are there things in your life and my life that are inconsistent with our own worldview? Life without him is pointless, the gospel gives us meaning. But we are not smart if we don't carefully think through our lives from time to time in order to evaluate if part of the structure we're building is actually on the sand. Remember, wisdom takes us right, folly takes us left, and things should be different because of God and the gospel. If Jesus rose again, he has all authority and he is Lord of all. And there's no part of my life that I don't have to submit to King Jesus. And moderation is not the answer. Nowhere does the Bible teach us that something can be wrong or even not best, but it's okay to enjoy just a little bit. Just don't let it take over your life. Moderate just a little bit. The message of the gospel is come to Jesus and be satisfied, not to need any other source of joy. My goal with the rest of this guided application is to give you a list of questions designed to reveal the areas where we are building on a faulty foundation living as if there is no God. You don't have to try to write everything down. Just look for one big takeaway for your own life, something you need to work on. When uh, when answering the question, have I built my life on the foundation that is God and God's instructions, we need to ask, is your life built on time with God? I don't want to be overly simplistic, but wouldn't it make sense for someone who has been saved by God, who loves God, who's in debt to God, who supposedly treasures God. Wouldn't it make sense for that person to want to know God? The best way for you to learn about God and to bask in the glory of God is to immerse yourself in this book. It's not about reading the Bible through in 90 days or in 365 days. It's not about how many chapters of your Bible you can read before sunrise. It's about renewing your mind it's about meditating and chewing on God's words because that's how he chose to reveal himself. And there's a secondary application here as well. Since God decided to reveal himself in a book, we have to have disciplined minds. Books are not easy to understand. It doesn't just happen that you understand a book. People, throughout history, people have learned how to read in order to read the Bible. People have learned languages in order to read the Bible. There's no practical difference between someone who doesn't read and someone who can't read. We need to be people of the book. We need to love spending time with God that way. Is your life built on time with God? When something unexpected happens, you get less sleep than you anticipated, something changes in your schedule, what's the first thing to go? Is the first thing to go always devotions? It's not about checking it off. Maybe there's a day once in a while where you need to change your morning routine in order to honor God better with the time that you have. But is devotions always the first thing to go? Do you and do you uh, get saddened when you don't get to have your devotions? Are you, are you relieved because you don't have to spend a half hour trying to figure out what's going on here? Or is it something that you're, you're bummed that you miss out on? it? Do you give up devotions before you give up breakfast? What, what have you built your schedule around? Build it around time with God. Second question, is your life built on the local church? Where do you get your sense of community and belonging? Where do you exercise your gifts and your talents and try to fulfill the one another commands of scripture? Where do you go to get affirmations that your decisions are good and wise or or where do you go to get correction when you fear you might have made a mistake to whom on this earth do you hold yourself accountable who has permission to say to you that you are not representing Jesus well in this situation. The reason to be a member of a church is so that you can be disciplined by the church when you need it. And I'm not only talking about excommunication when I say church discipline. The first step of church discipline is just a conversation with someone who cares about you. right? Going to someone that you care about and saying, I'm not sure about this. I've prayed about it. I've thought about it. Can you explain it to me? That's the start of church discipline. Sometimes it's a misunderstanding. Sometimes repentance happens right there. Is there a culture of accountability and repentance and confession among the members of calvary baptist church the bible says we're members of one another your walk with jesus is my business not because i'm a pastor but because i'm a member and my walk with jesus is your business it's not jesus and me it's our journey together The argument for meaningful, well-defined church membership is so that we can know who we are responsible to care for spiritually. If we don't know who the members are, we don't know who carries the name of Jesus. We're members of one another. A life built on the local church because Jesus said so. Last question, is your life built on relationships in the local church? A man once told me, That I should always have a Paul in my life. Someone who is investing in me so that I can learn and grow. But also that I should have a Timothy in my life. Someone I'm trying to influence with God's word and by my example of walking with Jesus. But that's not all either. I shouldn't just have a Paul. I shouldn't just have a Timothy. I should also have a Barnabas in my life. Someone who is committed to Christ, who can be an encouragement to me, and whom I can encourage so that we can grow together. If everyone in our church had a Paul, a Timothy, and a Barnabas, can you imagine the unity that there would be in this church? And how intertwined all of our lives and relationships would be if we had built our lives around relationships over and above our hobbies and our activities and other things God wants us to walk with him and to help others do the same we're supposed to be influencing people your discipleship begins when you get saved but it doesn't end until you're with Jesus we all need to disciple and be discipled to not do so is to live as if God doesn't exist if you like to read books read books with people If you like to exercise, exercise with people. If you like to eat food, eat food with people. If you like to shoot stuff, shoot stuff with people. (laughs) If you want to disciple someone specific, do the thing that they like to do, not what you want to do. Find a Paul, find a Barnabas, find a Timothy. If you feel like you are a Timothy, yourself, you yourself are a Timothy, you're new to the faith, inexperienced, or just unsure of yourself then your Timothy is probably someone who's unsaved. The woman at the well did not wait to tell people about Jesus. The man who was born blind that Jesus healed didn't know much. He said, I don't even know if Jesus is a sinner. What did he know? He was blind, and now he sees. He knew that he was on the left path, and now he's on the right path. Jesus changed his life. So build your life on time with God, on the local church, and on relationships, both in the church to grow and outside of the church to share. These three proverbs are loaded with meaning for our life today, and they're set within this larger narrative of the meaninglessness of life But I believe that the Holy Spirit wants us not to settle into the futility, but to break out of it and to grab a hold of a greater meaning, grab a hold of the meaning that we find in the gospel. I'll leave you with the words that Paul uses to close the chapter where he explains the resurrection. Words that I regularly go to for comfort and assurance that I'm on the right path. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, because of the resurrection, because of the gospel, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain or futile or meaningless or a striving after the wind. I'll close you in prayer if you wouldn't mind standing as I do so. Father, we're thankful for your word and your church and your spirit and the things that you've given us in order to know you so that we can have meaning in our life. With Solomon, we are saddened at the foolishness that is in every heart in this room. And with your entire church throughout history, we are grateful that you didn't leave us in our foolishness. You intervened. He gave us a way that our life could have true meaning. We're not stuck striving after the wind. We're not struck wasting our lives. We want to serve you. We want to find a meaning where the value is in this universe. And we know that you hold all of that value and have shared it with us. We're thankful for what you've done and pray that you would help us to build our lives on the truth that you exist and you care about us, you died for us, Son, sent us your son, and, uh, and we can live lives that honor you. To help us to do that. We can only do it with your help. In Jesus' name, amen.